our next sermon comes from Nehemiah chapter 9. We're continuing our sermon series in Nehemiah. It's a long chapter. I'm going to read the chapter. Um, some, of, some people ask, Eddie, why do you read the whole thing all the time when it's so long and you struggle through all those weird names? And the thing is, when I first became a Christian, this is what my pastor said to me. And, I, and as I get older and older, I realize it's totally true. Every part of a Sunday service is imperfect because it's run by man and it's done by man. But the only thing that's actually perfect in this whole service is when we actually read the word. You know, that's as close to perfect as you can get. And so I always try to read it because it's the closest to perfect that we can have here. And it's God himself. And so, you know, sometimes, sometimes I don't do it, but I, I, I feel bad shortchanging God on Sunday. So we're going to read the whole thing. And the word of God reads, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God, and the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshaban, Heshabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name and may be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. 
Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotted to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued them, the Canaanites. Before them, the Canaanites who lived in the land, you gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them into the hands of their enemies so that they ruled over them. When they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said... The person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them, nor abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore... Our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors, and on and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow the law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep, even while they were in the kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them. They did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites and our priests, are affixing their seals to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you that you are here. We thank you that your heart is always with your people, that your love for your people never changes. And so, God, we ask today that you speak to us. Open up our hearts. Open up 
the ears of our hearts that we might hear you. Open up the truth of your word to us, God, that it might impact us and change us to be like you. And Father, we pray once again, help us to truly know that you are real and that you rule. And Father, give us a heart that invites your rule into our lives once again. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today, what we're going to talk about is repentance, okay? Our passage today is all about repenting. Actually, our, our whole passage today is, is a very beautiful passage. It's a story of a whole nation that has come together in order to repent before God. And I think this is every pastor's dream. It's every pastor's prayer that our nation, Australia, would one day come to repentance. Do you guys ever pray that? Do you guys ever dream that? Do you guys ever dream that one day the whole nation of Australia would together come and repent? Do you guys ever pray like that? I think that's every well, actually, every pastor, we, we pray that it'll just happen in our church, right? You know, we'll take it. We'll take it if it happens here. But we pray because we want to see this whole nation come to fear God. But that's what's happening here, and that's why it's so awesome, and that's why it's so beautiful, you know? Uh, and I don't know if you've ever been a part of, you know, being a room or even a room or a church where everyone's repenting. It's so powerful. It's magical. A few years ago, um, there was a, a black person that was shot and killed in Chicago. And, and one of my old youth group students, who's now married and has kids, goes to this church. And, um, you know, that night, there was a huge, that church came out in protest against, you know, the silent, peaceful protest against the police who shot this black guy. And um, you guys know stuff like that happens in America. Anyway, they were on live TV. And um, my friend's church, uh, all of a sudden, they invite the pastor on live news to come and say something uh, on the news. And instead of saying something, he just leads the whole community in repentance. And he invites people to repent for their sins. He repents, he asks the whole nation of the United States to repent for their sins. You know, he asks the whole human race to repent of who we are as sinful people. And it was so powerful just even seeing that on live TV. You know, there's something powerful about a whole nation coming to repent together. But what exactly is repentance? I know a lot of you, a lot of you grew up in church, you heard the word, but today you're going to learn exactly what true repentance is. You know, the actual word repentance means to turn directions or a changing of directions. So the picture of repentance really is a person changing the, their whole life direction from one to another Direction. So healthy repentance, biblically, leads to a changed life. And we're talking something that was sinful into something that is now holy and reflects God. And we need to repent every single day so that our lives, who we usually live focused upon ourselves, which we naturally do all the time, can now be changed to become a life that is focused upon Christ and His glory. And that's ultimately what repentance is. And that's especially important because the things we've been talking about for the past few weeks is not only our identity in Christ, our purpose in Christ, our calling in Christ, who we are and what it means to be a people of God. But if we want to live those things out, changing from who we were to now who God has called us to be is, is an essential part of doing that every single day. So repentance has to be an essential part 
of our lives. The people in our passage today wanted to be God's people more than anything. That was like their dream, right? They knew their identity was a Jew. They were supposed to be, they were called the people of God. But once again, we just like we say every single week, they didn't know what it meant to be a people of God. They didn't know what it was like to have God as their God and for them to be their, to be his people. But that's what they wanted more than anything else. So the walls get rebuilt, the city gets rebuilt, but now it's time for them to be, to be rebuilt as the people of God and they wanted to be that more than anything. We learned last week, Nehemiah 8, wonderful, wonderful chapter. You know, they spent the whole week feasting. They spent the whole, they spent the whole week celebrating, you know, God and his commitment and his love to him. And it was absolutely beautiful. It was absolutely wonderful. They ate song, or they ate and they sang songs. And they spent this whole week celebrating what it meant to be a child of God. And if you were there and if I was there, it must have been absolutely awesome. But then all of a sudden we get to Nehemiah chapter 9, and for some reason it's completely different. The whole mood changes. And you're like, what's going on here? It, it, it transitions from this huge party to like repentance. And you're like, what happened? And the reason why uh, it's all different is because something beautiful happened. After spending a whole week worshiping God, after spending a whole week hearing God's truth and his love over them, all of a sudden they were awakened to the fact that they weren't who they really wanted to be. They wanted to be God's people. And after hearing all this truth, after worshiping him, after encountering him, after realizing how amazing and beautiful and awesome he truly is, they realized, I want to be like that. I want to be just like him. And therefore, we get to Nehemiah 9, and all of a sudden, the people of God come to him in full repentance, right? They realize, this is what I need the most. If I want to be like God, I need to surrender myself completely and then go in a complete different direction. And it's so, so beautiful. And that's what we're going to talk about today. There are three things that teaches us what true repentance is about in this chapter. And the first is this. True repentance involves remorse. Verse 1 says, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting, wearing sackcloth, and putting dust on their heads. You know, when I first became a, a Christian many, many years ago, uh, I had an old-school pastor, fundamentalist-type pastor, and his most common phrase was, You guys need to repent, man. Right? He would just say that all the time. And we would, all we would do is I would hear, I have to repent, I have to repent, you know? And I'll be like, okay. And he'd be like, Eddie, don't you realize that your sins put Jesus Christ on the cross? And every time you sin, it's as if you're like hammering the nails in his hands that much deeper. You put him there. Your sins put him there. Repent. I'm like, ah, oh, damn, I did that. You know, and I would repent. And I would feel genuinely bad over my sins. But there will be times at church where you come and you hear that story again, but it doesn't affect you. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm like, well, sorry, pastor. I don't feel that bad today. I was like, what? Don't you realize, Eddie, that you're totally depraved? There's nothing good about you whatsoever. There's nothing that you can be proud about. You're evil through and through, right? If it wasn't for Jesus, man, you wouldn't be here alive right now. And you're telling me you don't have a heart to repent and be like God Dude, you got to repent for that. I'm like, damn, you're right. I do. 
you know, I am bad. And then I would spend all night repenting, and I would feel bad about who I am, and I would feel so, so sorry. I would, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? Did you, that's, how I, that's how I became a Christian. Right? Eddie, that's why you're all jacked up. It's true. But is that remorse? Is that real remorse? Maybe. But at best, I think that's bad remorse. Okay? Feeling bad, I think that's bad. And it's bad because we're trying to make ourselves feel bad about who we are. Right? It's like self-generated, right? And that's not God-focused remorse. That's like me-focused remorse, right? It's not biblical remorse because it's not the result of seeing Christ, seeing God, experiencing his grace, and then feeling remorse over ourselves because we're not like him. But it's just me trying to make myself feel bad about myself. And ultimately, if that leads me to repentance, it really is just leading me to self-satisfying repentance rather than a true repentance that changes my whole life to want to be like God. Do you guys understand? If you're Asian, maybe you understand this little messed upness repentance that you know I grew up with, but that's how I kind of grew up. It took me years to get over this one and to learn what true repentance was all about, right? Uh, what happens in our passage today is something that probably brought all the priests to tears. If this ever happened in our church or even at the camp, I would totally cry all night. And the reason why is because none of this stuff was prescribed. None of this stuff was forced. People came wanting to repent, right? They, and they were deeply remorseful over their sins. And how do we know that? Because verse 1 says that they wore sackcloth and ashes, okay? They just don't do that kind of stuff just to do that kind of stuff. But they only do that stuff when true tragedy hits, when there's death, when there's mourning, right? And so, but for them to come to God after seven days of pure celebration and feasting, and they wanted to repent. It means they were deeply remorseful over their sinfulness. They finally were awakened to the true tragedy of them not being who God declared them to be and wanted to be. And they wanted to be it so badly that they threw sackcloth on themselves. They threw ashes and dirt and dust all over themselves. Right? And not only did that make them want to come to him in remorse over their own sinfulness, but it made them hunger and desire even more to be who God has called them to be. When was the last time you repented like that? Because you wanted God so badly, and you wanted to be like God so badly. That's what's happening in our passage today, right? You guys, you guys see that? You guys understand that? Because isn't that beautiful? And that's why they're fasting too. People didn't fast back then because they were full or because they needed to go on a diet. People fasted back then because they were hungry, right? You fast because you're hungry to be like God. And that's what's happening in our passage today. And that's why when you understand repentance in this way, and even remorse, the place remorse plays in repentance, true remorse leads to a, that leads to a changed life, that leads to a genuinely repentant life, cannot come from a desire to satisfy ourselves through guilt. Self-satisfying, you know, guilt, making ourselves feel bad about ourselves or our sinfulness doesn't lead to a truly changed life that honors God. But when we hunger for God and it leads us to true remorse over our sinfulness, then that remorse, that mournfulness is the mournfulness that God will comfort with the power of the cross. Isn't that what it says? Blessed are those who mourn 
for you will be comforted. Then Jesus said that in the Beatitudes. That's exactly what it's talking about here. All right? And so repentance from start to finish, if you understand it, really is not about how bad we are, but it really is about how amazing and beautiful and necessary and comforting Jesus Christ really is. All right? You guys understand this? Is that cool? Adi, I got it. I get all that. But truthfully, you know, what do you do, though? What do you do when you heard this all, but it still doesn't make you hunger for God? What do you do when you've heard all this stuff and you've heard the gospel over and over again, but it doesn't really cause you to be remorseful or repentant? And obviously, we find ourselves in that situation a lot, don't we? Right? We do. You know, we can hear a sermon and we can hear these, the gospel, but it doesn't move us and it fails to move us. And maybe we find ourselves in that situation when we've indulged ourselves in the world too much or maybe sometimes when we've been overchurched. Overchurching can kind of do that to you sometimes too. One day you just wake up and you realize you're a bit numb to God. So what do you do? So here we go. You know, what we're really asking when we ask that question is, Eddie, how can my heart feel alive in God once again. How can I have that hunger? How can I have that passion for God once again? The person that he wants me to be. And I'll give you one answer now, and I'll give you another answer in the second point. And here's the answer. The first answer is very, very simple. This is the answer. Choose. Choose Jesus. That's the answer. Okay? It's that simple. Right? Choose to think about Jesus. Choose to read about Jesus. Choose to be around Jesus. Choose to hang out with people who are actually actively living for Jesus. Stop eating worldly things. Stop investing yourself in things that aren't eternal, things that don't count, and just eat Jesus. Do you guys get that? Choose. Choose. Because I guarantee that the more you choose Christ, your heart, God will start to come alive to you, and your heart will start to change. Right? I know I share this illustration a lot, but it's the only one that makes sense to me. I love junk food. I hate dieting. I hate good food, and I love eating bad. That's just the facts. Okay? And I, at one time, I, I was discipling this guy who was a health addict, you know, and, you know, we were discipling, I was discipling him, and he basically said, Eddie, just, will you, can I put you on this diet? And I said, fine. And so for a few months, all I ate was healthy food, and I hated it. I was angry all the time, and I was like, you know, my wife hated it. I was just the worst person to be around. My body every single day was literally screaming because I lost my voice. My body was screaming for a Big Mac every single day. It was the worst. But the more I chose healthy food every single day, my body, in all honesty, felt better. I started to feel better. I had more energy. I could do a lot more stuff. It was just, everything was improving. It was absolutely amazing. And then a few months later, I actually did go to McDonald's, and I bought a Big Mac, and I felt like, oh, my goodness, this is so disgusting. And I actually threw up. Worst day of my life. Right? It can happen. Don't let that happen to you. <laughs> and I realized choosing changes. Simple. Choosing changes. In our passage, these people never read scripture, right? They were f as far away from God as anyone else. They hadn't heard sermons. They, 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 wouldn't, they didn't go to church for like hundreds of years, like a hundred years, right? They didn't know God. But after seven full days 
of hearing God's truth, half that day, worshiping him, the other half, eating and feasting with others who were focused upon him alone, they were moved. And you will be too. Once again, this passage was not prescribed. They just wanted to repent after hearing and encountering God, after choosing God. The problem with many Christians today is they follow their hearts when it comes to faith, right? And, um, you know, that way of living might work in certain areas of our lives, you know, following your heart. But we're not called to follow our hearts as Christians. We're called to cultivate our hearts. We're called, we're called to lead our hearts. Right? If anything, Scripture says that your heart's full of evil, and it always will lead you towards evil desires. But we're, that's why we're called to cultivate our hearts, to lead our hearts with truth. And that's exactly what these guys did for seven days. And it's really important for us to do that as Christians because Jesus Christ, we learn in, in Revelation, he wants our hearts to be hot for him. Not lukewarm, not cold, but hot. But how do you, how do you maintain a heart that is passionate for God? How do you maintain a hunger for God that's genuine and real and sincere and driving towards him? It takes choosing him every single day. Only then can not only we maintain our heart that's hungry for God, but we, have, we continually maintain this heart that's continually sensitive to the things that God is speaking to us about and the things that the Spirit wants to do within our lives. That kind of life is a life that truly leads to the worship of God. And to do that and to maintain that, we need to continually choose Christ. Do you guys get that? Is that, is that understandable? Your heart will follow. True biblical remorse leads to worship. Right. The first step in repentance is being remorseful. The second is remembering. Uh, verse 6 to 37 yeah, I'm not going to read it, but this whole, this whole chapter is basically recounting the history of Israel, isn't it? And in these verses, basically what you read about is this vicious cycle, this repeating cycle that God loved his people, he chose his people, he, and he blessed them, and it's absolutely wonderful. They enjoyed the gifts and the blessings that God gave them. But then they became arrogant. They became independent and prideful. They said, we could do stuff. We, we don't need God for all this. And because of that, God says, no, you do. He sent, he sent prophets. He sent guys to warn them, but they didn't listen. So what does he do? He punishes them by basically sending them to a different nation. They become slaves of a different nation. They're slaves of a different nation. They cry out to God, say, oh, we're sorry. We shouldn't have done that. And he's like, yeah, you shouldn't have. Let me restore you. He restores them. They become faithful, and they worship him. They're happy. And then all of a sudden, they become arrogant again. And they're like, oh, we don't want to follow you. God punishes them again, goes off to a different nation. They say, oh, we're sorry. We shouldn't have done that. He goes, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. And then they, he, they cry out to God. He forgives them. They bring them back. He brings them back. You know, and then the same thing happens over and over again. I think four times it happens, right, in this particular. It's, it's a vicious, vicious cycle. And the thing is, you know, I read this passage, and I'm like, wow, you know, to read off this story, I thought they were celebrating, but it's, it's depressing. They came to repent. It's depressing enough, but why do they read this depressing story to these guys? And and the answer is this. The reason why they read this story to the people of God is so that the people of God can be filled with hope and faith to trust in God for tomorrow. And you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would you, why, how is sharing a bad story or a negative story going to help them put their faith in God? And it's very simple. You know, and this is, I don't know if you did it, maybe, I tried, to, I tried to read it in a different way, but when I first read this thing for like the first two or three times, I read it with Israel in mind. Wow, they're bad. Why don't they learn their lesson? They're so stupid. That's how I read it, right? But if you read it five or six, seven times, all of a sudden you realize that the main character is not Israel. 
but the main character is God. And so therefore, this story is not highlighting the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. It is actually highlighting the absolute faithfulness of God's commitment to his people. And it's beautiful, right? Every verse in this passage but one mentions God directly. And what it's highlighting is the greatest eternal truth that we can know, especially in our day and age today, which is that God's commitment to us as his people never fails. It never changes. And maybe to take it up a notch, and maybe that's what this story is all about, is not only does he not fail, but when we find ourselves running away from him, he will always be right behind us, right? Not only does he love us unconditionally, but he pursues us relentlessly. This is our God, right? I read a story on the internet, and... um, I thought it was a perfect story for this, so I just copy-pasted. And I'm just going to read the story word for word, and it'll, you'll see. Here we go. Longing to leave her poor Brazilian neighborhood, Christina wanted to see the world. Discontent with a home having only a pallet on the floor, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove, she dreamed of a better life in the city. One morning, she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart. Knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter, Maria, hurriedly packed to go find her. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing, which was pictures. She sat in the photo booth, closed the curtain, and spent all that she could on pictures of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search. Bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with a reputation for street walkers or prostitutes. She went to them all. And at each place, she left her picture taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner phone booth. And on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. It wasn't too long before the money and the pictures ran out, or the and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown, airs no, her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet. Yet the little village was, in too many ways, too far away. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there in the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned, and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back of this compelling invitation, Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. I share this story because Jesus Christ is God's photo taped to a Roman cross, right? And the message that was true 2,000 years ago is the same today. Ever since the beginning of time, God has been in pursuit of you, right? He loves you, and that love for you will never change. And no matter how far you might run, he will always be right behind you because he loves you. 
as his child. And no matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, it doesn't matter because his invitation for you to come home to him will always be available, right? And that's all available because what Jesus Christ did for you. He paid the penalty for all of your sins. And he paid that penalty so that you could now put your faith in him and be fully forgiven. And he died so that you could always be loved and embraced by God. Right? Because of Christ, we can always come home to God. Why do I share all this? Because that's what we always need to remember. This, the Israelites spent all day in remembrance of their whole history, which highlighted God's faithfulness to him. What's great about us is 2,000 years later, we have that same photo in the cross. We have that same story, that same history that we're a part of. And every single day as you remember the cross, as you remember the gospel, allow it to penetrate your heart and to lead you to true repentance so that you can be all that he wants you to be. And just like it did for the people 3,000 years ago in Jerusalem, allow that memory to fill you with faith and thanksgiving and hope to trust in him for tomorrow. Remembering leads us to trust. Lastly, repentance is about recommitment. Verse 38 says, In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. What we see here is that in this passage, as a result of their repentance, they decided to recommit themselves as a whole nation to obey God and to follow God. It's absolutely wonderful. You know, there's one lesson that I want to share with you about recommitment that hopefully will help you be more faithful in your life, and that's this. Um, you know, if you commit to simply living a better life for God, it may not work. Okay, That's what I've learned in 30 years. If you simply leave today saying, okay, I'm going to live better, and you try to, it may not work. But if you commit yourself to making God greater. It's a different like motive. It's a different intention. If you commit yourself to making God greater in your life, your life may change. Okay? And that's my helpful suggestion to you. I used to play violin when I was younger. Uh, much younger. <laughs> I used to, anyway, uh, one time I entered this competition and uh, there was, the competition was, they gave you this piece to play that I'd never seen before. It was a very complex piece. It was very difficult. But they gave everyone in the competition one month to practice it. One month. You're given the piece, and you're, you're allowed to practice for one month. And then you go to the competition, and you do the best that you can. Anyway, I go to the competition. This thing was hard. Anyway, the piece was super hard. It was just like, when I first saw it, it was like all these black dots and lines. That's all I could see. It was as if like a whole ant farm got smushed on a piece of paper. I couldn't understand it. Anyway, I go to this competition, and all I could think of for one whole month is, I got to learn this piece, I got to get all the notes right, and as long as I play the notes perfectly, it'll be fine. And I worked really hard, and I was able to play. So I go to the competition, I'm ready. But the moment I stepped into the competition, I heard other people practicing, and I realized two, two huge things in that moment. Number one, there are some people who are seriously gifted ass, right? I am not, get, anyway, I am not one of them, but some of these people, they're just like, oh, man. And you knew, I knew there's no way I could win, okay? Number two, what I realized is 
certain violinists, when I listened to them play, they weren't playing notes like I was. But when, I, when you hear me play, you'll hear notes. But when you hear them play, all of a sudden I started to hear a message. I started to hear the geniusness. I started to hear the intentions and the heart of the composer being expressed through notes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is this too much of a, like a musos type illustration? Do you have to be one of those to understand this? Sorry if, I, if it is. And I was absolutely overwhelmed. I couldn't hear notes, but I was hearing the composer conveying a message to this guy playing. And I was absolutely overwhelmed. Any one of us can try to obey God. Any one of us can try and listen or reflect a command of God in our lives. Any one of us can not sin. Any one of us can try to live holy. Any of us can play the notes of Christianity. But what we don't realize sometimes is that there is a message that the composer God wants to convey through our lives. Right? There is a story that our lives are supposed to convey to this world, which is obviously the, the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was meant to be broadcasted through our lives. But that only comes alive when we choose to make our lives about making God greater and not playing the notes. So the choice that we have every single day in Christianity, are we, are, are we going to play the black notes? Are we going to feel good about ourselves that I didn't sin that sin? Or, or are we going to like feel good about ourselves because I did that really really good thing today and start counting those things? Or are we simply going to look at our lives as the greatest privilege in the world to reflect the story of Christ through our obedience so that this world can hear and feel and see and sense the message of Christ through our love and adoration of God himself? Do you know what I'm saying? The composer wants to send the message to the world through our obedience. It's not about just the obedience. It's about what God wants to say through it and how God wants to be exalted through it, right? And it's absolutely wonderful. Right? And so, and so that, and that's, and our intentions are everything, you know, through recommitment. When we recommit our lives to God, don't commit to just living better or being better but recommit your lives to making him greater and allow his melodies to play through you. Recommitment that way, repentance that way, leads to a life that glorifies him. So repentance is remorse, remembering, and recommitment. You know, repentance is so crucial for our growth in Christ. But maybe for some of us, we've been practicing it incorrectly you know, repentance is not making ourselves feel bad about ourselves because we sin, but repentance is the intentional pursuit and exaltation of Christ in our lives because of or as a result of his generous love and grace and forgiveness and acceptance, you know, of us. And that's why it really is a change in direction for, from pursuing ourselves and pursuing what we want and sin to a, a pursuit of God, to a pursuit of Christ and who he calls us to be. And that's why true repentance is never and can never be self-serving. But it is always God-honoring, right?
Remorse leads to worship. Remembering leads to trust. And recommitment leads to his glory. I hope this passage and this message helps you live a life of true repentance. Let's pray. Why don't we just spend some time talking to God and just open your heart to him. Remember the cross. And once again, ask him and allow it to lead you to remorse and to recommitment that makes him great through you. Let's pray. spend some more time just uh, talking to God. Let's um, just come to him. He's listening. He loves you. You're safe. Let's just uh, let God speak to us right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love that never changes. We thank you that no matter what we've done or what we've become, it doesn't matter. Because your love is greater than any sin that we could have committed. And we thank you that every single time we come, whether we have this heart that's alive or a heart that's kind of dead, it still doesn't change you. 
and your love and commitment to us. We thank you that the gospel of Jesus is that powerful. We thank you, God, that the blood is that powerful. We thank you, God, that your forgiveness is that great. And we thank you, God, that even in our ignorance, you pursue us relentlessly. Give us a heart that wants to be like you, that hungers for you. Not because that's the right Christian thing to feel or to want, but because we just see you that clearly that that's all we want. You are all that we want. Ignite that hunger within us once again, that desire within us once again. And as a result, to live this beautiful, wonderful life of repentance every single day in light of how amazing and beautiful you are. Help us to become just like you. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.